0: Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to another episode with the Cybersecurity Ambassadors. My name is Jacqueline, and today I am joined with Andrew Hewen, who is an instructor at the Central Maine Community College. Hello, Andrew. How are you today?
1: Excellent. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing very well. It's It's kind of in that odd temperature range for me where I'm too cold in a T-shirt, but too hot to wear a sweatshirt, so... I'm frustrated.
1: (laughs) Yes. And and I've lived in Maine my whole life. So I know if you don't like the weather, you just wait a few minutes and it'll change.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, So I was hoping you could start by telling me and, and our listeners a little bit about yourself.
1: So again, my name Andrew Hewen. I'm an instructor for Central Maine Community College. I'm also an adjunct instructor here at USM, I'm teaching this semester the Capstone course. So I'm having a lot of fun with the, the high-level students.
0: Oh, very exciting.
1: So I've been teaching for about 10 years. Um, my first teaching gig was actually at USM as well, teaching uh, Java programming for uh, the computer science program uh my first degree was in computer science and i loved it so much i stayed for mathematics
0: oh, okay <laughs> oh wow yeah
1: i went on and and um while i was doing some other work stuff i got my master's degree in business and i'm currently working on a phd in data science
0: oh my goodness wow that's uh that is a very long journey to commit to i yes. have great respect for anybody who You know, gets their bachelor's degree, but I know it's a commitment just to go on after that um, to get a master's and then also a PhD. So that's very exciting. I'm I'm very happy for you. And um, what is there anything in in particular that inspired you to pursue teaching and specifically in cybersecurity?
1: So um, when I was a student, uh, I knew that I liked computers and I knew that I wanted to do something with computers. And uh, not to date myself, but when I was using computers, it was the Apple IIe era and Mac Classics. So um, the internet hadn't kind of formed its image of of what it is today. Um, So when I started to look for schools to learn uh, computers, really, it was computer science or nothing. Um, So again, computer science and computer technology, two very distinct fields. There's some overlap, but but not really a, a cool bridge there. Um, so I was about halfway through my computer science programming, writing C++ code and, and not really enjoying it as much as I wanted to. And I said, wouldn't it be great to be a teacher? I would love to be a teacher. I would love to do this. So I went and tried to switch my majors and they're like, you can't. There's no, no path to change your major from a computer science major to be a teacher. You'd have to start over from scratch.
0: Oh my goodness, Um, (laughs) that's a disappointing answer to be.
1: So I went and I I finished my computer science degree. I went on and and got my math degree, Um, and then uh, while I was doing that, I I started working in the field. So I come from a customer service field. I worked at CVS. I did ten years as a a first a clerk, and then a a shift supervisor there. Moved over into um, Time Warner Cable. I started as customer service. Unplug it, plug it back in, try it again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and from there, I went on to their network operations center and in their network operations center, instead of looking at that, that one person perspective, now you're looking at the whole network and everything there. Um, and really that's where I started to learn things about cybersecurity and, and protecting your plants and your critical infrastructure and how things are interconnected and, and the bigger parts of things. Um, after I worked in the knock, I was a systems administrator. As a systems administrator, I was responsible for 360,000 cable boxes. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Presque Isle, Maine to Athol, Massachusetts. Wow. So uh, I did a lot of cybersecurity stuff there. Um, and then after I left Time Warner, I started working for the city of South Portland as IT. And my title was Help Desk. But my job was... Uh, everything in between.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. I yeah, it's it's a, a lot of people that I, I have spoken to that share very share very similar roots, you know, there seems to be this appeal of having people who have worked at a help desk, who are familiar with IT but are familiar with working with with customers. So that's um I, I guess it kind of always interests me that 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 seems to be a very common background. Um And so being a a teacher, what do you think are the most important skills that you've had to develop personally to to teach successfully? And do you feel like any of those skills are specific to cybersecurity?
1: In terms of teaching, I think um, ways people learn is very important to understand. I understand now how I learn how to do things. And I also understand that the way I learned how to do things is very different than most of my students. So that's something that you sort of have that to sounds teach yourself, challenging, Yeah, where, where there's different modalities of learning. Some people learn by reading a book. Some people learn by actually doing hands-on. Some mm-hmm. people learn by listening. Some people learn by watching somebody do something. YouTube is, is very popular for that, right? You go and you watch 10 minutes of the oh, video yeah, and you right. convince Absolutely. yourself, hey, I know how to do this. <laughs> sometimes it works well. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, for cybersecurity, I, I wouldn't say it's any different. Mm-hmm. I would say that it's a, a lot of the same, right? You have yeah. to teach yourself how to learn and how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, for cybersecurity students, I would say that they need to, to learn how to be hands-on with things and not be afraid of the computer, right? Understand what they're doing and, and experiment and try different things, Yeah, but also have that greater understanding of, what they're doing and what changes they're making and mm-hmm. how it affects that big picture, um, yeah, in their system
0: absolutely. And it's funny you mentioned that because I am a little bit older than than some of my my peers going through the same program, and it's interesting to see how my learning preferences differ from theirs. You know, I grew up with pen and paper, so for me, I have to write everything down, and that's just how I learn. But you know, so many of my younger peers are very digital. You know, they're putting everything in their their phones and in their calendars. So it's um, it's a bit of an adjustment for me. Like, you know, I'm trying to evolve and be like, you know, I want to be cool and hip and be with the times because you know, who uses paper anymore?
1: <laughs> and so when when I was a student at Usm, I I started taking notes on my laptop, and I didn't realize until years later that that actually is a detriment to me. Handwriting using that that pen and paper. That's actually how my brain is wired and how my brain works. When I take notes and I write it down, I'm I don't even have to look at the notes ever again. Me writing them out by hand mm-hmm. and that process of uh, brain to hand,
0: yeah, creates
1: that... that that mental synapse and that connection between the material and I. And that's how I learn.
0: Yeah, no, and that that's the same for me. Um, so any, I think you've kind of delved on that a little bit already. But what would you say? you find most rewarding about teaching and what keeps you motivated to continue educating students to become cybersecurity professionals.
1: And for me, I I always look for that student to have that aha moment where the things start to connect and they see the connections and they see what's going on and start to understand really the process Mm. that we go through. And it's funny because I talk to my students who have graduated from my programs or my students have moved on to do other things. And they're like, wow, back when you were doing this, I really didn't understand it. But now that I'm here, I totally get the process. Yeah. And so there's there's something to convincing those students. Right. Trust the process. I've done this Mm. before. I know what you're going through. I know it doesn't necessarily make sense. And right when you're a baby and you're learning to walk right, you have to take those stumble <laughs> right. steps and fall over a bunch of times and get back <laughs> up to learn how to walk and how to run. And computers and cybersecurity is the same way, right? We we get to make the mistakes. Yeah. My goal as an educator is for you to make those mistakes in a, in a safe environment and in, in a school, in a classroom, in a lab, and not have to learn by fire out in in the real world, right. and, and crash a business network where they start <laughs> yes. losing money.
0: Yeah. Um, that's a. Uh, I, I feel like that's really what drew me personally into um, cybersecurity. I think it was actually initially. I was going for computer science and I took my first programming class and I was like, I'm struggling. I don't understand what I'm doing. But then somehow at the end of the semester, it's like it all just came together. And I, I had that, that aha moment where I was like, I get it. Like I'm seeing the matrix. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, I appreciate that, that you're, and, but I also can see that that could be a challenge. So I'm I'm curious, what do you find most challenging about teaching cybersecurity?
1: And for me, it's that the technology is always changing, mm, right? Yeah, something that I knew today isn't necessarily the same tomorrow. Absolutely. And the things that we we start to progress in, and the the things that we start to learn, some of it f- comes to fruition, and some of it doesn't. Um, and really, like. Computer science, that's that's where I learned that. Right. We don't teach a programming language. We teach the toolbox.
0: Right. 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 So
1: when I first learned, I learned in Pascal. Right. Nobody uses Pascal anymore. It's gone. Right. Instead, we started teaching in C++. C++ is great. It's not going to go away anytime soon, Mm -hmm. but there's a a much larger overhead to learn something like that than there was to learn Pascal as an entry-level language. And converting from one of those easy languages to one of the harder languages was a lot uh, easier of a progression, Yeah. right? So when I started teaching, they were teaching in uh, Visual Basic, and I'm like, why are we (laughs) using Visual Basic? And they're like, well, what would you use? And I said, well, you know, Python is an up-and-coming language. It's mm-hmm. one of the languages that seems to have this community draw. And I happened to, to you know, pick it at the right time in the right set of circumstances. Yeah. And, and really, Python has come a long way mm-hmm. in the past 10 years. And, and everybody's starting to adopt it. One, because it's uh, an easier syntax to learn. It's very high level. But it's also uh, a lot of libraries, expandable, community base. So really, it's, it's a great first language. And again, people are always like, oh, well, should I learn Java? Should I learn Pascal? And my response is always, it doesn't matter, right? Whatever you learn, just learn the ins and outs, and that will help you on your progression. Python happens to be helpful because when you're doing cybersecurity, a whole bunch of scripts written in Python, mm. all there ready for you to use. Yeah, it's got the basics of the loops and and the structure of the syntax, so it's really that great intro language without all of that overhead. Uh, sort of junk that you'd have with those harder languages like C or C++. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And again, if your your goal is to become a programmer, no, you don't stop at Python. You keep going. You learn those other languages as well. Um, but if your goal is cybersecurity, right, Bash, Python, any sort of scripting language is going to help you um, progress in that manner.
0: And You're absolutely right. Technology changes so quickly so i imagine that must be quite the challenge like you said to kind of look ahead and think okay where are the trends what what's evolving and you have to really stay ahead of it in order to you know not make the wrong decision to be like hey are we you know adopting something too soon to make sure if this is going to be like a standard um, versus you know looking and seeing the haze as a tool that is actually being used anymore so I, I don't envy you having to make those decisions. But I am curious, um, because not only do you teach classes, but you've contributed to the design of a lot of courses. Could you share some insights into what it's like developing a curriculum for cybersecurity, especially, as you mentioned, It it sounds like it evolves a lot.
1: Yeah. And and luckily, there's a lot of good organizations out there that already have sort of this foundation structure in place. So IEEE, ACM, those are some some standard organizations that have been around a long time that say, if you're going to have a program, here's where you should start. Mm -hmm. And then there's some other certification bodies out there that sort of guide my direction of what skills are going to be relevant and where things are going to go. And I use those sort of as a guidance and a baseline, not because I'm teaching towards those certifications, but because they have a better understanding of the market and who they're trying to sell those skills to and what um, companies are looking for for those skill sets. So again, if a company says, hey, we want somebody who has their CCNA, right, it's my job to teach the skills that they're going to need to be able to be successful in that exam. So I can go and I can look at the Cisco CCNA exam and say, here's the objectives for that exam. So here's the things that should be relevant in my course, right? And again, it it's nice to say, hey, you can take my course and pass your CCNA. But those are standard exams. Those are hard. They're yeah. meant to be hard. They're designed <laughs> to test you. Right. So it's not a, a natural pathway to say, hey, take this course and then go pass that exam. It's not a boot mm-hmm. camp. Mm-hmm. It's here's the job skills that you're going to need. Here's the job skills that employers want. And so when I take courses myself, I'm with people who are in the industry and who are learning to do it for on-the-job practice. And I see, hey, these are the things that they use. These are the things that they need to know. And then I can build my courses to sort of mirror yeah. those. Okay.
0: I see that. That seems like a really good approach to it. Um, it it sounds intimidating to me to look at taking people who are coming into your, your classes who likely don't know very much about cybersecurity. You know, they're just starting out and then you're basically trying to build a path for them to get to a point where it's like, hey, you now have the skills and the knowledge that a business is looking for. And you've underlined a lot of kind of how you go through that process. But is there anything specifically that you are looking at um basically yeah. like how do you stay updated with the latest developments and trends and incorporate them into your teachings? Cause it sounds like you're one approach that you take to that is you go out there and you take these classes um and are getting kind of a feel. But I'm wondering too, are you is there an approach where you approach other businesses or do you talk, is there any kind of collaboration to see the the needs and, and demands for these positions?
1: So that the IT environment, especially in Maine, is, is sort of small. So I've worked with a lot of people who are in industry. And so I see their trends. I see what they're learning. I see what they're doing. I see what they're interested in. Yeah. So that's one huge way that I get some information from people who are actually doing that job. Um, there's also a lot of conferences. I fortunately had that the opportunity before COVID to go out to DEFCON in Las Vegas, oh, which is wow. a huge, yeah, <laughs> yeah, huge hacker competition. Um, and and they do things like capture the flags, but they also uh, bring in cars and and voting machines and medical equipment oh, wow. and show how to hack those. And again, the the idea is is we're not just trying to be malevolent and do bad things. We're trying to show the owners of these devices some of the security holes that exist to make the overall platform better. Mm -hmm. And so we have to be the instigators of change in our security field. And so hackers, right, that has that terminology that has that connotation of of bad and wrong and and criminal, mm-hmm. where hacker just means, hey, we're doing something that was unintended an unintended use, right? So when somebody says life hacks, they they get that connotation, right? We're just doing something to make it easier. Ethical hacking, white hat hacking, whatever you want to call it. Right? That's meant to improve the security posture of the organization or the equipment. That's mm-hmm. meant to show the issues, not in a malevolent or extortionary way, but to to raise the security profile and make things better for everybody.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so I actually have two questions that kind of came to mind as you were talking about that. Do you teach anything related to like penetration testing or have skills that could translate into ethical hacking. And how do you, I guess, teach the ethical part and really stress to students that it's like, hey, these are tools that you that malicious people could use, but that's not what the, the purpose of this is.
1: Yes, and, and so at Central Maine Community College, we do have a penetration testing course that's taken in the senior year. We require all students before they enter that course to actually pass a formal background check to make sure that they don't have a predisposition for any of that sort of behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, Because again, it isn't our goal to teach somebody who already does bad things to cover up their tracks. right? But certainly that road leads to that path. So for our penetration testing course, I make sure, hey, we're in a sandbox. When you do your penetration testing that I'm going to teach you how to do, Make sure that you have expressed written permission from a person of authority before you start. While you're in my room, you're safe, right? If you take these same things that I'm teaching you and you go out into the real world, that can have consequences. Mm, absolutely, that can lead to to people being blocked if the the network's set up correctly and appropriately, right? So I always use the example, right? You do a pen test on Google. Well, Google says, hey, this is malevolent, and now you don't have access to Google anymore because that's what they do, right? The network intrusion sensors are designed to respond to perceived threats. It doesn't know your intention. It can only see what you're doing, and it will act accordingly. And so... Students like to take our skills and, and, and use them, and I, I try to instill in them, hey, that's great. I want you to practice. I want mm-hmm. you to do these things, but do it in my environment right. where it's safe.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Do it against
1: my equipment. Here, <laughs> let me show you how to set up some test machines. So I direct them to sites like Volm Hub and, and other um, hack the box type websites where they can practice those skills in a sort of capture the flag target environment. And so I've had students who go on to become pen testers and say, hey, the same things we're doing there are, in fact, the same things that I'm doing in real life. And in fact, in real life, it's a lot easier because the machines aren't set up to be protected against these things, and, and it's not goal-oriented or object-oriented.
0: That's really great to hear. I I like that approach, and it, being on like the, the student side, I took an internship and I kind of had to police myself because it was suddenly like, oh, like I'm not in that test environment. And it's intimidating because it's like I I could do a lot of stuff here that, you know, has a lot of moral and ethical, like questionable actions behind it. And so you have to be very careful because it's not like there's a a big sign that stops you. You know, it comes up and says, hey, you know, maybe you shouldn't open this file or maybe you shouldn't change the setting um so it can be a little intimidating at times and I think it really opened my eyes to realize how easy it is to get into this and and why it's so important to have cybersecurity because it's almost like the wild west in a way it's like i anybody can download a tool and start playing around with it and potentially do something with consequences down the road um so yeah i, I appreciate that that approach that you're taking and and i like that there's kind of this uh importance and the stress of of pointing out to students that these tools can be used in in bad ways, but that's not the purpose of it. So I appreciate that.
1: And and really my experience with some of the tools came from that IT infrastructure. So NMAP is one of the tools that we use in my penetration testing course. And and for penetration testing, we use it to find open sockets and, and be able to have an attack structure. Mm-hmm. But for yeah. IT, it's great to find the equipment that's on your network, right. and where things are and what IP addresses that they have. Absolutely. So really there's that dichotomy of it's not intended for that use. Right. right? That's where the hacking comes in. It's, mm-hmm. it's something unintended. Yeah. Um, but it's freely available and and free to use for everybody. And it's very helpful both in the security and in the, the IT structure of right. the world. And so I couldn't imagine not using that yeah. tool now that I've been exposed to it. exactly,
0: <laughs> exactly. And so the you earlier you had brought up going to like kind of a convention where they were showing how to hack into some common devices that we use, um, and it made me think of you know kind of the ongoing concern with IoT devices. And I was wondering, what do you think are pressing pressing issues or emerging challenges in the field? And what do you think that students should be aware of as they are going into this field?
1: Yeah, and and IoT is one of those huge ones where we're trying to push really fast to see what we can do and not stopping to think about the security consequences of those. So if you go back to the early days of the Internet, right, everything was plain text. Everything was unsecure protocols much of the internet now is still unsecured protocols. Yeah. So in my introduction to networking class, I have them, right, look at all of these protocols, which of them are secure and there's maybe 5 out of the 100 list <laughs> that I give them, right? It wasn't designed to be secure. The security came after. Right. So as a cybersecurity professional, we try to instill in, hey, we need to have that security built in. We need to have these secure mechanisms in mind when we're designing our applications, not as an afterthought of, hey, let's patch it and fix it on the other Right. End. Right, should a light switch be able to, to compromise your network, right? And that's what IoT is, right? You're giving an IP address in your network, you're giving it free reign if we haven't locked it down and secured it then you've just created an access point,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? And you watch TV shows like Mr. Robot, right? And and some of the stuff that he does is pretty scary. Right? Yeah. He hacks into a, a HVAC system and and changes the temperature and melts servers. Yeah, That's not out of the realm of possibility. That's what IoT right. does. And if you're not putting up a firewall between your HVAC system and your, your file servers, then you're just asking for things like that to happen. And so we we look at it as parody, but really Mm -hmm. it's it's sort of a reflection of our environment if cybersecurity isn't on our forefront.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I I find that very exciting because I think that there has been an acknowledgement uh, you know that IoT devices need some some extra love. They need some extra work, and like you said, I'm i what you're saying here. I'm seeing parodied a lot by like NIST about how there needs to be more of an effort in designing security at the the con the concept of of these IoT devices. Because I think even on a consumer level, many of us make the assumption that devices we purchase are safe and secure right out of the box and you know plug and play and we're good to go and we don't have to think about it. So I'm I'm very pleased to hear that this is something that you know you guys are are thinking about um and and bringing attention to for your students because they may be developing some of these devices in the future or trying to secure them for a business. So that's great. And um You've, you've touched on this before, but can you discuss the importance of hands-on experience in cybersecurity education and how you help provide practical learning opportunities for your students?
1: Yeah, and, and cybersecurity is not a spectator sport,
0: right? <laughs> right. So
1: um, when you talk about the different positions, we, we sort of talk about different job roles and job tasks. Right. So a security engineer is the, the frontline person, the person who's going and making the adjustments to that. Right. If you talk about higher level people like CISOs or CTOs, right, they're the people who make policy mm-hmm. and sort of dictate that. So that's the spectator. Arena, right. Right. They're the people who are at the top making the most money and, and, <laughs> and telling people how things need to be configured and are responsible for that being pushed down. Mm-hmm. The security engineers that I'm training in, in my program, those are the people who are actually going in and, and doing the settings configurations, right? So, right, we're troubleshooting. You need to turn off a firewall, right? What are the consequences, right? Well, you're turning it off to test to see if that fixes the issue. That's fine. Turn it off, test it, turn it back on. Not a problem. Turn it off and leave it off, right? That's dire consequences yeah. in the, the long run. And so for hands-on training, I... I, I and still network. Network is is sort of my fundamentals and how I grew up thinking about things. Mm-hmm. So introduction to networking is important, advanced networking, and then network security, and then penetration is all really network-based. So we're looking at sockets and what's open and why is it open and what can you access and what commands can you send across, hands-on, hands-on, hands-on. Um, and again in a virtual environment we can do that just as easy as a physical environment so I can build the equipment and and demonstrate it that way or we can set it up in packet tracer or gns3 or um, virtual machine and show the same sorts of consequences that that occur and and the things that you can do in those environments.
0: Yeah that's very cool and and like you said kind of that sandbox environment so they can kind of see you know the consequences without there actually being consequences i think that's really important because um being able to understand these systems inside out it's it can take a lot of work i think and just reading about it in a textbook isn't enough so i i'm glad to hear that there's a lot of hands-on experience as well going on in in, in your curriculum. This is a question I like asking because when I first got into cybersecurity, it was not what I thought it was. So I'm curious, what are some common misconceptions that students might have when they first start out?
1: So I think the biggest misconception is that um, you're going to know everything. You're going to know everything about <laughs> something, right? So when when we talk about IT, when we talk about computers. The terminology that I was given is um, jack of all trades, master of Mm, none, mm
0: -hmm.
1: right? And that's not entirely true. We do become subject matter experts in our field. So I mentioned mine happens to be networking, right? I I sort of focus on, and that's my sort of niche sort of market there. But everything else is built around it. For students, they want to learn everything about anything, And uh, some of my students assume that I know everything, and and I'm the first to point out I don't know everything, right? I have an intuitive sense. I play with things. I I go in and I start to learn things, and I I keep a visual structure. So when I introduce something in a lab environment like penetration testing, right, I'll use Kali Linux, right? That Mm -hmm. happens to be a popular distribution out there for security engineers. Is it what they're going to use to do professional penetration testing? Probably not. Right. But it could be. Right. Right. (laughs) And all of the tools that are included within that distribution are things that they're going to use and things that they're going to see. Right. So we talked about NMAP and, and, and things like that before. Um, but again, the students are like, well, why don't you use Parrot or why don't you use this? other distribution? Why don't you use Blackarch? Right. And again, I could. Right. But the difference is, is I have these skill sets that I'm teaching. I'm not teaching you how to use Kali. I'm teaching you some of the tools that are built in there. Gotcha. And yeah. This happens to facilitate that learning. And again, the misconception is, is like, there's right answers and this is how it has to be done. And this is what's going to be. Mm-hmm. And as we were discussing earlier, right? Things change all the time in technology. Yeah. What you know today is not the same right. as what's tomorrow right. is. Right. And, and so I grew up, it was dial up networking.
0: Right?
1: <laughs> yeah. It was modems and, and the screeching noises mm-hmm. back and forth. So again, it was slow and, and nobody thought, Hey, we're going to have instantaneous connections, right? The biggest lie that I was told in school, right? You won't have a calculator in your pocket. Well, now we carry a calculator, a phone. A, right. A I PDA. know. We got, we got instant access right. to all of that information. Right. And so we start to look at the new things coming down the line, like AI and how AI is going to to play a part in education. Right, And so there's a misconception like, oh, well, you're old and you you don't like these new technologies and you're scared by them. And and it's not that. It's just a matter of we need to adopt them correctly Mm -hmm. so that they benefit our use and and we can get that value added from it. There's no sense in just widely adopting things as fast as possible. We have to understand the long-term implications of what we're doing and, and how we're going to involve it. Again, I'm not on the other side of the fence either that says, hey, we need to stop anything new from coming down the pike, right? We know how we do things. Let's let's stop learning. No, it's it's a continuous learning environment. Yeah. You're never going to be to that end. Even when you have a terminal degree. Right. You get your PhD, <laughs> that doesn't mean learning stops, you're done, right? Right, it's right. It's just the doorway to the next big thing, right? The postdoc stuff. Right. of Research and 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 determining what's coming down the line and staying abreast of it
0: (laughs) yeah so that's a interesting point to be made because technology does advance so quickly and sometimes i do get worried about us not seeing like you said the long-term effects of some technology and having the opportunity to really see how is this going to shift our society because i think we are approaching some topics that have that potential to really change things. And, you know, the hot topic I think right now is, is AI. I still think it has a long ways to go before it, it really changes our society. But I am um, curious what your thoughts are. And, you know, especially with things like chat GPT, I hear a lot of that in, in the academic, you know, area. Is that a challenge or something that you're concerned about? Is it really affecting how you teach and how your students learn?
1: So the biggest concern, of course, is plagiarism and and somebody taking assignments and dumping them into ChatGPT and turning that work in as their own, right? And again, that's where some of those stopgap measures, oh, you can't use ChatGPT for anything. You can't use AI on your assignments. And again, I, I don't necessarily think that that's the correct approach, right? We need to show them how to use it appropriately. Mm-hmm. And again, that's hard because it wasn't a tool that I've had access to for a long time, right, right? It's right. really only been around about a year and a half yeah. in, in commercial use. So, but in that year and a half, it's come so far and been so widely adopted because it makes things so much easier and in that instantaneous access to information. So as an educator, I, I try to point out, Hey, it's not always right. 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 Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it's in fact, I think it's gotten worse in the past <laughs> few months where the answers I are would even agree. Yeah. more off the wall than they were when they first started out. And to your point, right, it's not really artificial intelligence. It's not thinking. Mm -hmm. It's doing pattern matching. Yeah. Right. So, again, my background is computer programming and how algorithms work and and having that fundamental understanding. So I understand what's going on under the hood and how it's doing its selection processes and and things of that nature. Right. And to try to explain that to a student and how it works and how they can um, craft the queries to get the information that they're looking for. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, we can't just ignore it either, right? So businesses are adopting virtual assistants that are using these technologies like ChatGPT to to basically replace the first person that you talk to. Yeah. Hey, you had an issue with your coffee at Dunkin' Donuts in the morning. You're not going to call and talk to a person anymore. Now you go onto their website and you chat with their bot. Yeah. And their bot has frequently asked questions and has answers to those, right? And can actually refund your account before you ever actually talk to a live person just through those interactions.
0: Yeah, that is pretty crazy. Um, and I think that that's a, I have interacted with those bots myself. I, so I that wasn't something i thought about that, how it, that's already kind of being incorporated into businesses. And I also appreciate that you acknowledge that it's, it can be used as a tool, it can be helpful, and it's likely going to stay to your earlier point of, you know, having past teachers say, hey, you're never going to have a calculator with you. You know, um, I heard the same thing with search engines, you know, you have to get familiar with, you know, looking up books in a library, because you're you're never going to have information at your fingertips. And um, so I think, I think things like AI, obviously, are here to stay. And, being able to use them in a in an efficient way, but in a I guess again using that term ethical, you know um, it should be not a replacement for our our own thinking process, but I think a tool. Um, so i I think it's refreshing to hear that you, again you're you're thinking about it and how can you help your students use it in an effective way
1: right. and and to me, the analogy is almost like a Wikipedia. Right. Mm -hmm. So Wikipedia is the same kind of way. It's got a lot of great information really quickly. Right. You can't always trust everything that it says. Right. Right. So trust, but verify. Right. That's Mm a huge sort of uh, topic in cybersecurity as a whole. Right. So we start to get information from it, but then we have to go and verify sources and, and check things. And so, one of the dangers of ChatGPT, right? You ask it to give you sources and it does. Mm-hmm. Here you go. Here's some sources. None of them exist.
0: Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I, They're not real. No. <laughs> um, you know, I was writing a research paper and I was looking for some good facts. And I, you know, and I did. I turned to ChatGPT and I know, like, hey, you know, what's some relevant information about this topic? And it spit out this great quotable fact and i was like this is perfect i want to do more research on this you know where did you find this and it was like oh that was just hypothetical you know i I made this up for you because i thought you would like it and i was like thanks thanks chat gpt very very people (laughs) it is. yes (laughs) so um and uh, we've talked quite a bit about technical skills but i'm also curious what other I think they call them kind of soft skills, do you think is important and essential in cybersecurity? And, and how do you incorporate those in your curriculum? Yeah.
1: So um, in
0: penetration
1: testing, we talk a lot about social engineering. And I think social engineering is one of those huge people skills, mm. right? Yeah, learning absolutely. how to talk to people, learning how to connect with people. And the analogy that I used back when I was working in IT was every day when I drove into work, I would listen to the radio and who won whatever sports game, football, basketball, baseball, so that I would have something to talk about with my clientele as I was working on their computers, right? I personally have no interest in sports or what goes on,
0: (laughs) but again, it gave me
1: that bridge to be able to communicate with them and and sort of make that personal Mm -hmm. connection with them. And with again, social engineering, it's all about making that personal connection, making it feel like you're trying to do that. Mm-hmm. So um, learning the soft skills, learning how to talk to people, right? It makes you a better hacker, but yeah. it also makes you a better person and, and lets you have conversations with people and and develop that rapport that, yeah, absolutely. that's definitely needed to to understand. And so in, in things like user education training, right, we can make a list of rules and we can give them the list of rules. But if they don't understand what those rules are and, and mm-hmm. how it affects them in the long term yeah. and what it does, right, why shouldn't you write down your password? Right. I need to type it in. I need right. to see it. Why can't I write it down and have it taped to my Yeah. Right <laughs> Right. If we don't explain it to our customers and, and we don't take the time to listen to what their concerns are. Right. And one of the biggest concerns with passwords, right, is that either they're too short and can easily be guessed mm-hmm. or they're too long and complicated and people can't remember them. Passwords are the worst form of authentication. So now, instead of just a single form, we use multi-factor authentication right? yeah we introduce pass cards and pin numbers. Mm-hmm. right. So I log into my bank with a password. It may not be the most secure password, but they're immediately sending me a token for me to log in, right? Type this passcode in or or go to your email and click the link or something of that nature to be able to further authenticate and identify who I am and where I'm coming from.
0: Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that is a very necessary skill because like you said you're going to have all these policies and i think a lot of people just want a quick explanation you know they want to understand okay why what is the benefit of me taking this extra step why do i have to create a password this way or why do i have to use this multi factor authentication and i think you know as a cybersecurity expert we know we we've Gone to class, and it's been, you know, hammered into our head why we have these policies and why it's important. And I think being able to just take that and convey it to the the people who don't have a cybersecurity or tech background and and explain the importance, I think that's that's a very useful skill to have, and probably one that people are going to keep coming and, and and being faced with as they they go into their careers. <laughs> Um, and speaking of careers a lot of jobs mention certifications maybe not necessarily always that it's a requirement but you know i see a lot of hey you know if you have this we we like to see it on your resume um, do you think college helps prepare students for certification and is that something that you're that's kind of in the back of your mind as you're teaching
1: so certifications are great um, but I also consider them just a piece of paper. Right? Mm-hmm. It says that you passed this one test at this one point in time. Fair enough. Yeah. For organizations that are hiring students and, and other people, right, they need to identify what skills that they have. Mm-hmm. So again, it goes back to that same process that I used to develop my curriculum, right? Look at what those skills mean and how they map to those certifications, and sometimes they get it right. Right. Hey, we're looking for somebody who has their CCNA because we have Cisco gear and we're configuring networks and they're going to be doing that. Um, sometimes they get it really wrong. They don't understand what <laughs> yeah. the certifications are mm-hmm. or the expectations that come with them. Yeah. Especially in Maine, it's, it's a really tight job market. They don't want to pay for the certifications and, and the levels that are expected. So if you go on to to websites, you go on to SANS or some mm-hmm. other organizations, they'll say, hey, if you have um, your CASP, your, um, CompTIA advanced security practitioner, then you should be making $110,000 a year. (laughs) Right. And so my first question is, okay, I have that. Where can I get that job? Right. Right. Show me where that job is. Yes. Show me the money. (laughs) And, and if you go to Boston or New York or Los Angeles, right. Easy, no problem. Mm -hmm. But in Maine, Right. We don't have the infrastructure set up. We don't have the population. We don't have yeah. the, the need for that. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times you'll see in job ads, hey, we're looking for somebody who has their CCNA. We'll give them $30,000 a year. Well, $30,000 a year is what you get when you're walking out of high school and going to your first yes. job. Yeah. So it doesn't really match those those levels. Mm-hmm. With college degrees, I think it has a little more longevity. Because it understands that, hey, you're going to go through the process with college degrees. We have the breadth of skills. Mm -hmm. So we have a requirement. Hey, you need to take an English class. Hey, you need to take a liberal arts class. And not only does it give our students exposure to other fields that they might not otherwise take or be interested in, Mm -hmm. but it also gives them some of those foundational skills. Right. I can teach yeah, somebody to absolutely. pass, pass uh, uh, the network plus exam. Right. Right. And they'll have all of the skills that they need to to configure routers and switches. But if they can't compose a basic email to be able to communicate to their boss. Right. Uh-oh. There's a, a yeah. loss there. Right. That you can't get. And again, it goes back to some of those soft skills, mm-hmm. right? being able to communicate effectively and, and efficiently. Yeah. And so I think with the college degrees, especially that there's value added there. And it gives the students that that overall experience. Mm -hmm. Certifications are good. I always tell my students, hey, if you want to get a certification, find a job. Make them pay for it. Yeah, there you go. Right. If you're serious about you having that certification, they certainly Mm -hmm. will. Yeah. Um, Employers in Maine, like Tyler Technologies, they're a great one, right? Mm -hmm. They look and they see what you have, and if they think you're a good fit, they'll bring you in. They'll pay for your certifications and they'll bump you through those programs. Yeah. And those certifications are not cheap, right? As students, we get some discounts, right? Right. But they're still well. They're expensive. And prior to me. Actually, teaching, I didn't have any of my certifications. Yeah. I had the skill sets right, from right. my college degree, but I didn't have any formal certifications. But because they want me to sort of push them on my students, mm-hmm. they'll pay for me to take them as an educator. Right. Right. And so it's that mixed. Hey, I'm giving you all of these skills that you need <laughs> to learn, and and ideally you can go out and pass these certifications, right? But again, my goal isn't to just get you to pass this test. Mm-hmm. My goal is to give you the job skills that you're going to need uh, when you go out into the workforce environment, right? You don't get paid to have the piece of paper; you get paid yeah. for the skills that come with having that piece of paper.
0: Absolutely, and um, and and like you were saying, you know, certifications are expensive, and they they may not be accessible to everybody. And I think they're not a good substitute, like you said, for for the, showing the experience, showing the skills, and they don't capture the soft skills, like you're mentioning. Um, but I also appreciate too that you acknowledge that. it's like it's not going to hurt you to have it. You know, it's yeah, just
1: and, and actually in in some instances it can, because if you have the certifications mm. and you have your degree and you go to get an entry level job,
0: oh. they can
1: say. You're, you're overqualified.
0: overqualified. Okay, good to know. You, good to know. You're
1: overqualified. We can't hire you. And yeah. then you go to look for a job that matches the certifications, and they yeah. say, "Well, you don't have any experience." <laughs> well, I don't have any experience because I'm overqualified for that job. Yeah. And so it gets that that sort of
0: yeah, well, a bit of a conundrum, egg, right, right? Right. And you did kind of bring up an interesting point about that. That's specific to Maine, and kind of how. Our state works in terms of, you know, we're not not a a huge state with a massive population. We don't have these massive cities and these huge universities that have endless resources and funding. Um, So there was actually an article published by Diverse Education in 2022 titled Universities Tackle Cybersecurity Work Shortage. It said if you're a small liberal arts college, chances are you're going to be far away from many resources. That means colleges and universities need to cooperate with each other to share resources in ways that aren't quite natural in higher education. That can or, that way we can make sure that courses are developed and training is successful. Can you share any examples um, or successful partnerships that you're um, aware of? Have you seen any kind of like resource sharing with between schools or or, or businesses that have helped impact the development of cybersecurity in Maine?
1: So uh, again, there's two different sort of avenues to approaching cybersecurity education. Mm-hmm. So at um, my school, Central Maine Community College, we have a workforce development side, which is designed for short-term trainings, get them into the workforce as okay. fast as yeah. possible. So they'll provide short-term boot camp education, give them the trainings that they need for specific job skills, yeah, and put them right in. And a lot of that is um, through Harold Alphon Grants mm-hmm. and their organization. They donate a lot of money um, for that to be in place.
0: Oh, that's awesome to hear. And so
1: on our side, we have the education side. So we're designed for that. hmm Again, we, we do associate's degrees, right. but we do two years, and then you can take that two-year program and you can go on. So I've had a lot of students actually come to um, USM and, and complete the four-year program here. Mm-hmm. There's other schools out there as well. Um, uh, WGU does it 100% online. Uh, UMA, Thomas College all have programs yeah. in the state of Maine um, that work with cybersecurity and help upskill our population. So, again, how a student goes about it can be a couple of different ways. Do you want just the certs or are you looking for that holistic sort of Mm -hmm. education? Yeah. And I know that at the master's level, USM works with UMA um, to develop their master's in in cybersecurity and shares their skill sets. Because, again, I don't have enough of the the teachers and educators and enough students demanding those skills Mm -hmm. to be able to hire full-time faculty to do it 100%. Right. But hopefully, down the pike, we'll we'll get there. And uh, I've also worked a little bit with uh, K through twelve in the the state of Maine. They have a what they call their Moose Project, which is um, online education opportunities. And some of it was in cybersecurity and digital literacy to get that into the K through twelve. Oh, students. that's wonderful! Yeah, and so there's a big push for cybersecurity education, even before they get to the college level. Yeah, that's and great. And again, that's a huge partnership mm-hmm. with, with us as well, because they're starting to see some of these skills. Yeah. And we have some um, CTE programs, uh, career and technical education at the high school level
0: mm-hmm.
1: that are designed really to move into the two-year program and then from the two-year program into a four-year program or five-year program. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of opportunities and a lot of different pathways that people can take depending on what their overall goal is and and where they want to go and what they want to do. Yeah. And certainly uh, COVID has helped push um, remote work opportunities. Mm -hmm. So even if they're not working in the state of Maine, they can live and do their job in the state of Maine with Internet access. Right. And there's been huge initiatives through the the Mills administration to push broadband access to rural areas in Maine and and money and infrastructure to get that built up. Yeah, um, Fidium's been dropping fiber everywhere, right? And, and building <laughs> that up. And there's even more money coming down that the pike to build up the infrastructure and get high speed access everywhere.
0: That's great. And
1: that's been one of the big struggles with the state of Maine as well. Is is how broadband is defined mm-hmm. and how fast that speed actually is. Yes. And we've sort of been yeah. lagging behind the national definition of what broadband is. So we need to to sort of catch up.
0: Yes, right? And yep.
1: in big cities like Portland and Lewiston, right, we have those opportunities to have the high speed internet, mm-hmm. but in places like, uh, Otisville and and other places right. in Maine, right? They don't necessarily have those same opportunities. So yeah. expanding and, and building that critical infrastructure and putting it in place and and having the backbone is huge.
0: That's great to hear, and I I just love hearing about initiatives like that and about you know Maine really just trying to come together. You know, as a reaching out to our communities and building these connections. I I think it's great hearing about the. Uh, University of Maine and Augusta kind of having this partnership to like, hey, how can we build, you know, a curriculum together and, and make everybody who goes through our university successful? So I love it. I love what I'm hearing. And I'm, I'm curious, uh, is there any particular reason why you were drawn to, to higher education yourself as opposed to like a K through twelve?
1: So um, I have more patience with adults. <laughs> That's fair. And and really, um, when students come into my class, the first thing that I say to them is, you're adults. If mm-hmm. you want to be here, your yeah. time is better spent elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, K through 12 is hard. Yeah. Right. They're legally bound within state laws to have a, a certain level of education mm-hmm. for all of their students. Yeah. They basically have to get all of their students to pass.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so that. Isn't something that really appeals to me. I want mm-hmm. the people who want to succeed to succeed, right? And I'll bend over backwards for anybody who who needs help, yeah, or, or wants right. help, and is asking for help. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they don't want to put in the time and effort, then... that's
0: absolutely. I I completely agree. And um, as another headline that I pulled from from sort of recent news in a 2023 article published in National Defense Magazine. Will Markow, the vice president of Lightcast, which is a labor market analytics firm, told Congress that in the past 12 months, there are over 660,000 cybersecurity job openings in the United States, and in a separate report published by the Pew Research Center, the computer science workforce, which includes cybersecurity, is only made up of about 7% of Black individuals and only 8% Hispanic individuals with also only uh, 24% being women. And so I'm curious, you know, with with there being such a demand and a shortage for cybersecurity professionals, what are your thoughts on the need for diversity and inclusivity within the, within the field? And how can educators contribute to promoting diversity in cybersecurity?
1: So recruiting for diversity is that a huge huge topic in cybersecurity because we need individuals to come and join our programs. And traditionally, right, we've had a lot of issues with that and opening up those opportunities for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I myself am, am hard because, right, I, I'm the stereotype of, of what we're trying to work against almost. <laughs> <laughs> and so I have to have those tough conversations and open it up and, and bring people in. And diversity, right, is huge, right? Yeah. Having equal access and equal opportunities. Mm-hmm. And it's very systemic in nature. So it doesn't just start at the college level. It starts well before the college right, level. Right, right. So really those initiatives with with K through 12 and, and bringing digital equity mm-hmm. and digital literacy to those yeah. students are going to open up some of those opportunities and and hopefully bring them in. I know they said with with um, women in particular, it's one of those things that they don't choose to go into computer science or they don't choose to go into cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. And again, that comes from a lot of inherent biases that have come in the line and 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 sort of propaganda that was pushed in them and and the image of what a computer scientist is. Mm-hmm. But then they go into fields like neuroscience and do things in programming and, and and computational studies. So they're doing the computer science work, but they're taking a different pathway to get there. Okay. Interesting. Um, yeah. So so really, it's not... Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things that we have to overcome that... that um, I don't know if it's bigotry or... or right. Image or... It's tough. It's, it's hard to say. And, and it's really hard. And, and so... When we're recruiting we have to be careful, right? Because we don't want to single them out and feel like, hey, we're we're just going after you because of this. Right, right. Or we're just trying to check a box, right? We're yep. just trying to be inclusive and, and get everybody in, and allow this opportunity for each individual. Yeah. While opening up those doors that were previously closed to mm-hmm. other types of individuals and groups. Yeah.
0: No, that's it's great to hear. And I also appreciate too that it is challenging. You know, it you you definitely want to kind of have that feeling of being genuine, you know, that it's like we really just want everybody to be interested in this field and trying to understand what barriers may have been in place. You know, that's not a, an easy thing to, to uncover. Um, so I appreciate your answer. And um, I I think that will pretty much wrap up the The interview and I appreciate you so much for taking the time to meet with us. Do you have any final thoughts or or, uh, closing wisdom that you want to part to our our listeners?
1: So one of the stories that i like to tell in my computer programming class, I'd like to ask the question, uh, um, which came first, uh, computer programming or computer science? And so what would your answer? To that oh. Question be, right? oh, boy. Um, and are they different hmm. topics? Can you have one without the
0: other? <laughs> I that's tough. Um, I, I don't know that you can have one without the other. Um, you know, part of my curriculum is has been delving a little bit into the history of like, you know, the internet and, and looking at some of the earliest computers. And um, I, I still feel like there was just this marriage from from the get-go um but i'm i love programming um so i i feel like i'm i'm maybe in that camp a little bit i like writing i think when i look at problem solving that's usually my go-to is like oh, can i do this with the with a script or something <laughs>
1: <laughs> and so i always go back and i say well if you look at ada Lovelace, right she's Credit is is one of the first computer scientists, mm-hmm. and she existed in the time before digital computers and digital programming, right? So you can have computer scientists without computer programming, yeah, right? Yeah. But again, today traditionally we think well, programming <laughs> right. is done on a digital computer, and we have to implement computer science principles mm-hmm. of storage space and things of yeah. that nature, right? But really, Ada Lovelace was was one of the first as she was building the algorithms mm-hmm. to work on the mechanical machines designed yeah. by Charles Babbage. So.
0: Yeah, it is it is pretty wild to think about how, you know, these processes and this way of thinking existed before computers, right? <laughs> so, and
1: a, a lot of the hard work was done before us. Yeah. Again, uh, people are always like, oh, you're so smart. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm just good at repeating what other smarter people have <laughs> done for me. Right? They've put in the hard work, so... Uh, I learn what I can. I, I pass on what knowledge I can, and and hopefully I, all of my students succeed greatly and and become much more than I could have ever done.
0: Yeah, well, That's always my goal. <laughs> I would say I would say so. I, I you know when I first uh, met you at the door, I was telling you that we have students who pass through here who've been in your courses, and they're like, "Hey, we we really need to get Andrew on the podcast. He's great." So I'm really glad that you took the time, and and we appreciate all of your. Um, expertise and, and your insight into to what it's like teaching. And I appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Thank you.